اللهم شيت ومروجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم وقال ربي شرح صدري ويسر لي أمري وحل الأقطة المسانية فطولي بسم الله والحمد لله والصلاة والسلام على رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم أما بعد The first stage of the revelation is the first contact where Allah SWT makes that connection with Muhammad SAW this was all about getting Muhammad SAW ready for that responsibility. So he's had these preparations going on. Muhammad SAW's prophethood and his prior preparation is like when we're growing up, ready to take responsibilities in the world. So when you have young children and you start preparing them mentally, you start nurturing them in a, in a certain direction, they're exposed to certain ideas uh, of kufr and you have to counter challenge there and you bring them in an environment which is Islamic and so forth. It's exactly what Allah Ta'ala did with Muhammad Sallam. <clears throat> he kept him protected from all of the kufr, all of the taghut that's around them. As we know, you know, as he tried to go and listen to the, the night music in Makkah, and Allah Ta'ala prevented him from listening to that. So I want you to almost put yourself in the same state. So this, the first point was to get Muhammad Sallam ready and the seriousness of that. Then at that point, Muhammad Sallam didn't have a choice, but he had to tell his wife, Hazrat Khadija. This wasn't, an, this wasn't what we call intentional dawah. Because he's, he's obviously gone back to Hazrat Khadija. He's petrified. She's asking what's happened. He's told her what's happened. She understands that this is something very different. It's not some devil. And because she has some previous information from her cousin, Warqa bin Nufail, who is a Christian, and she understands something, this gives her the, the motivation to go and ask him and Adas, the, the black slave who was a Christian, that what do you think it is that he saw? Give me the description of Jibreel. And when she understood this, then it was solidified and it was understood that he was the, the prophet. This was confirmed by Muhammad Sallam as everywhere he walked. The, you know, we know that the rocks and the trees, they, they gave salam to him and then in Jibreel showed him and that was it. Now the stage came where people started embracing Islam. So the first people that came to Islam and look at that was the household of Muhammad Sallam. So people like Hazrat uh, Ali, who embraced Islam, obviously his wife, then Zayb bin Haritha. We didn't mention his daughters, but yes, his daughters naturally all embraced Islam because the love and the compassion they have for their, for their mother and father. There was no doubt all four daughters accepted Islam from them. And then it came to the second layer. So when you have responsibility as a Muslim, in most cases for us, it isn't that we're converts, it's that we're born Muslim. And as we're born Muslim, we don't start off on the right path. And so we progress through life, 14, 15, 16, 17, and everyone, and it could be our parents as well, that haven't embraced or followed the path of Islam 100% or the correct way, we're all kind of diverged off the, the right path. So what we do is that we always hope that in a family unit, one will find the way, right? That's what always happens, always one. Normally, sometimes it might be the, the son, the daughter, it might be even the father, but one will find the way. So the first responsibility then becomes whoever finds the way and the haq, it's their responsibility to now bring the others into Islam. And that's where their challenges come, right? So if they have a strong family unit and they love and they have that compassion, then they will follow that person for the haq because the haq is something that's easily absorbed. What prevents the haq to be absorbed is the influence of shaitan on you. And if shaitan builds enough barriers in your mind, he can actually walk away and you've got enough of your own silly and weak arguments and ignorance and arrogance that will prevent you following the truth. 
So what that what that equates to is in your, in a family you might find when you're telling your siblings or you're telling your wife or you're telling your husband to pray and they just don't want to do it. Then you know that we've got some problems here. So these are the first natural challenges. So when Muhammad spread the doubt to his immediate family, some embraced and as you know, some didn't, right? Abu Talib being one of them. His uncles are people like Abu Lahab who were very much against you know, Muhammad So you find that he didn't get 100%. But what are we seeing here? We're seeing a complete parallel of what issues you're going to face and I'm going to face. So Muhammad again, perfect example. Not everything went his way just because he had prophethood doesn't mean yes you're the chosen one but does that mean we're going to make your path easy no because you are going to be the example for everyone else you're going to be the person that is going to go through these struggles so that you can show the ones who will follow you that it is not that easy because otherwise if Muhammad had everything easy and everyone embraced Islam at his time everybody will say today but he was a prophet and everything worked out for him, and Allah favoured him, and he was a great man, and he had the ability to do this, and therefore he didn't have a challenge, and we're nothing, we're nobodies. And therefore we have this defeated mentality. So when the Dawah started spreading, talked about Abu Bakr Sadiq, his best friend, and then Abu Bakr Sadiq naturally invited other people. So there was lesson number two in this, is that there was reach, reach of your sales pitch, reach of your Dawah, there were some people that even Muhammad Salam couldn't convert or could struggle or couldn't get to. The first phase of people that he got to, they had the ability to reach out to those additional people. So Abu Bakr Sadiq, who invited people like Zubair, Hazrat Uthman, etc, etc. And they came into Islam. So now I want to talk about some of the very closer companions and some companions that you may not have heard of, but there are some that I want you to just keep in your mind as I go through these stories. And the way I'm going to do this is that I'm going to introduce some of these Sahabis slowly and how they embraced Islam in the early stages, but what their full story was until the end. So you know that this Sahabi and what he represented and what they actually became by following Islam. So that's like saying what you can become if you commit yourself to the deen. And inshallah, you can have that story at the end when you face death and you face Allah SWT on a day of judgment. That is what we're trying to get out of this. That they were normal people. Some of them were people who followed Jahliya. They were idol worshippers. They were, were highway robbers. They were everything you can think of under the sun. And then they embraced Islam and they became something. And I'm talking about something not for the world to see, but something in the eyes of Allah to Allah allowed them to enter the Jannah. So the first one I want to talk about is, if you remember last week when I talked about when Abu Bakr Siddiq went to the masjid and he said to Muhammad let's pronounce Islam, let's let people know what Islam is. And how did that? That completely backfired on him in the sense that everyone attacked him and beat him quite badly. But just in any bad situation, Allah can, from a bad situation, bring something good. From that bad situation, the mother of Abu Bakr Siddiq embraced Islam. On the same day, Hazrat Hamza also embraced Islam. Who is Hamza? Hamza is the step-uncle of the Prophet Muhammad Muhammad's father, Abdullah, obviously his father, Abdul Muttalib, got married twice. So there were a bunch of children from the first wife and a bunch of children from the second wife. So Hazrat Hamza was from the second wife, as was Abu Lahab was from the second wife. So these are his step-uncles. 
So Hazrat Hamza was very similar in age to the Prophet Muhammad Sallam. And if you remember in the early stages, when Muhammad Sallam went off to the foster mother outside of Makkah, Hazrat Hamza was also adopted. So even though his uncle, I want you to think of this, they're very similar in age, they're more like friends. Muhammad Sallam was walking somewhere outside of the outskirts of Makkah and Abu Jahl comes across with some of his cronies and runs into Muhammad Sallam. And he starts berating Muhammad Sallam about what is this new religion you're talking about? And he starts getting really aggressive. And because of the nature of Muhammad Sallam, because he's very soft, he's very loving, he's, he's got very tender heart. These people who were the leaders, the Quraysh, they, we can imagine they're like very bullying kind of people. They, the way they treat everyone, their attitudes towards their people, their leaders of their, of their tribes when they go to war. So you can see they've got this very sort of macho attitude. So when they see Muhammad Sallam, they start picking on him. And Hazrat Hamza was a different kind of character. Hazrat Hamza was a loner, he was a hunter, and he was known as the greatest warrior amongst the Quraysh and people feared him not just amongst the Quraysh in the in the area of Makkah but all of the other outskirt areas nobody would go anywhere near Hazrat Hamza so when Hamza saw Abu Jahl picking on him he became so angry that Hamza had a bow and the bows are very very strong they have to be because you have to pull back to find the arrows he took the bow and he started hitting Abu Jahl on the head and he beat him so bad that he fractured his skull and then the Banu Makhtoum tribe that was there with Abu Jahl, they came in and they stopped Hamza. And Hamza said, what is your problem? Why are you picking on my, my nephew? And they said, oh, but it was religion. He said, and what about the religion? The religion that I follow? And that was a shock because Hamza never accepted Islam. But because he naturally wanted to defend his nephew, he said, what, the religion that I follow? This is my religion, and I want to see what you're going to do about this. If you want to bring an army, come bring an army. Let's see what you're going to do. Abu Jahl woke up after being you know, unconscious, and he was a very politically and a very sort of diplomatic person as well. He thought, okay, if we start kicking off now with Hamza, Hamza's a very popular guy. We don't want to give extra popularity to Muhammad. Leave it be. Sorry, Hamza, my mistake. We're going to move on. So he thought, we're going to deal with this matter later. That was in the back of his mind. So Abu Jahl went. That night, Hamza went home. He mentioned that when I went home, the devil came to me and said, what have you done? A man of pride. You know, when you say something in those days, when you say something, you've got to stick by it. Because it's like now, if you say something, if you just go back on it, people just think you're a liar. You've got no guts. You're not going to stick to your word. It's not a good thing to be. So Hamza was like, what am I going to do? I've just, I've just literally rejected the religion of my forefathers and mainly my father, Abdul Muttalib, who's so famously known. He, the guilt just kicked in. And Shaitan was like, what have you done? You've adopted this new religion. You've left your own. What, you can destroy your community? You're going to cause all this fitna? What are you doing? And he said, oh Allah, if the religion of Islam of Muhammad is true, then find a way and put it in my heart. Give me an indication that is the haq. So Hamza said, that night was the worst night I ever had. I could not sleep. The devil was on me all night, putting fitna in my head. And this happens to a lot of us when we're angry about something, we're annoyed about something. You know, we always get these really bad thoughts in our mind. I'm going to see him tomorrow. I'm going to sort him out. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. And the fitna. This is shaitan coming to you. The shaitan will come and they will influence you. 
In the morning, he wakes up, he goes to see Muhammad and he says to him, Oh nephew, yesterday I said that I was Muslim. Give me something that will show me that what you follow is the truth, is the haq. And so Muhammad sat him down and explained to him the very few of the rules, rules of the aqidah, the monotheistic belief of Allah, not to take any partners, and the concept of heaven, and the concept of hell. And he started talking about all these things. And at that moment, just in that conversation, now remember you can approach conversation different ways. If you come from a, if you come to a conversation with already a pre-notion or a pre-concept about what the other person is going to be talking about in the argument, you could already have a defense mechanism. It means your mind's not opened. That's why when you try to resolve issues of fitna between husband and wife or brothers and sisters or friends or a business deal, you've got to come with an open mind to see your own faults and the possibilities of another scenario or view or a perspective. But people don't do that. A lot of people will come with a pre-notion and they'll come and they don't want to hear your point. Hamza came with a perception, I'm going to come with an open mind and show me. And when that mind opened up, Allah put it into his heart. And that day, Muhammad made a dua for Hamza. Ya Allah, make it easy for him and put it into his heart. And that's when he took his official shahada. So then Hazrat Hamza now joined the party of the Muslims. And this was huge for the Prophet Muhammad to have someone like Hamza on his corner. So this was a story about Amr ibn Abbasah from the area of Yemen. So we're talking about after Muhammad had converted a very few people, we're talking about three, four, five people into Islam. And I'm not talking the people within his immediate family, leave them out to the side. We're talking just outside friends and, and acquaintances. So this hadith, uh, which is from Muslim, explains how this man amazingly from the land of Yemen, from Makkah to Yemen, that's a very long way, right? That's a few days journey to get there. How the message got out very quickly from the time where Muhammad started preaching this religion that was alien to everybody else. Amr ibn Abbas's story is interesting because Amr ibn Abbas's story, he was the one that when he asked Muhammad the question, the evidence regarding wudu and salah came into existence. In Yemen, traders were coming from Makkah and he was hearing that there was a man that had a new message. It sounded very appealing to him. So Amr ibn Abbasah wasn't the type of person that was very strong in idol worshipping, but he was very receptive to ideas of good and khair. So when he heard about this, he rode all the way to see Muhammad So when he came to see him, and he sat down with Muhammad he said, are you Muhammad, the one who claims to be a prophet? Yes, I'm a prophet. And so what is a prophet? Because this is... The idol worshippers never had prophets. They just had their gods, they worshipped, and there was nothing. There was only sorcerers in between them that would give them the ideas and the views of what the gods are telling them. So what is a prophet? Prophet said, it is what Allah has assigned me with the responsibility. What is it that he sent you with? He said he has sent me with the message of maintaining the kingship ties, breaking the idols, and upholding the oneness, the monotheistic belief of Allah without associating anything with him. This part is always a big thing for the Quraysh because that was their fundamental belief, not associating anything with Allah SWT. And I said, who is with you on this religion? A free man and a slave. Now he took that as there's only two people then. 
But what actually Muhammad Sallallahu meant was, I have free men and slaves. Now by this time, Hazrat Bilal had also embraced, and there was a few of the, which I haven't covered their story, but time pending, later on we'll cover them in between some of the stories. At that moment, this man, Amr, said to Muhammad Sallallahu then I want to embrace Islam. I like what you say and I agree. And he went off thinking that I am one quarter of this religion. Because if there's only two, Muslim is the third, then I'm the fourth. And he always believed I was one quarter. As a whole religion, I'm the quarter of it. You understand? So he always had this view. And then he said to Muhammad that should I stay and should I follow you? And he said, no. You know the, the predicament that I'm in. It is very hostile. It's very dangerous. What I need you to do, go back to Yemen. Don't stay here with me. And preach this, what I have taught you. And when the time comes and you hear that I have openly proclaimed Islam, then I want you to come and join me. As you know what the story is, 13 years, Muhammad is in Mecca, he's advertising and he's promoting Islam to everyone and he's met with a lot of hostility and it came to a point, the breaking point, the 13th year in Mecca, where he had no choice but to escape because they wanted him dead. They wanted to kill him. And Medina was already prepared for him. So he left and he made his way to Medina. And when he arrived in Medina, they made him the Khalif and the leader of Medina, which obviously caused a big issue for the, for the Jews and some of the hypocrites. Imagine now, about 13 to 14 years later, Amr hasn't seen Muhammad He arrives in Medina and he asks where the Prophet was. And they said he's sitting in the masjid and he walks in and he sees the Prophet and he thinks the Prophet's not going to recognize me. And he goes and sits next to the Prophet and he says, Ya Rasul, do you remember who I am? And Muhammad never forgets her face. I know exactly who you are. And I prayed for Allah that he gives you success. And he said, I brought my whole community with me. Then he said to Muhammad other than what you've taught me, the three or four things, I've missed out on a lot. And he said to him, please tell me something that you can teach me. Tell me about the prayer. Rasulullah said, perform the morning prayer, then do not pray until the sun has risen up to the height of the lance. For when it rises, it rises between the horns of the devil. At Fajr time, when you wake up, be very careful that you are not spraying the salah as the sun is coming up. So the way you understand this, imagine you're at a beach and you see the water line. As long as you do not see the sun's head, you can pray. The moment the sun's head comes up, that is the period it's forbidden. And that's when suddenly he said, do not pray while the sun is coming up because it rises between the horns of the devil. And this is when the unbelievers will prostrate themselves to it. This was the tradition of the old believers and the, and the pagans that when the sun used to rise, that's when they used to pray because they were the sun worshippers. He's now talking about the Fajr, now he talks about the Zuhr. Then pray for prayer is witnessed and attended until the shadow of the light shrinks. Then do not pray for at that time hell is fired up. Then pray when the shadow becomes longer for the prayer is witnessed and attended until you perform asr. Then do not pray until the sun sets for it sets between the two horns of a devil, the reverse of fajr. So at maghrib time, when the sun is coming down and it hasn't hit the horizon, you cannot pray this time. It's when the sun has dropped. It is when the unbelievers prostrate themselves to it. I then went on to say, O Prophet, tell me about the wudu. He said, when any one of you approaches his water for wudu, 
and rinses his mouth and nose, the sins of his face fall with water from the edges of his bed. Then when he washes his hands up to the elbows, the sins of his hands will fall with the water from his fingertips. Then he wipes over his head, and then the sins of his heads fall with water from the ends of his hair. Then when he washes his feet up to the ankles, the sins of his feet fall with water from his toes. Then when he stands up for prayer, praise Allah the Almighty, exalt him, glorify him as he deserves and empties his heart for Allah the Almighty. He becomes free from his sins as he was on the day his mother gave birth to him. So, just to kind of explain to everyone about the prayer and the wudu. We commit many sins, all right? Today I heard a hadith and I thought it was a very powerful hadith. There's a hadith of Muhammad and it's a strong hadith. And it says that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala on the day of judgment will forgive everyone, every mu'min, every believer. No matter what they've done, he will forgive every believer for his sins. And he will show his rahmah mercy on them. Except for the one kind of person. That person is the one who committed haram openly. And openly so that others can see him commit that haram and influence the others. That person will not get the rahmah from Allah on the Day of Judgment. So when we think about things like wudu, there's an expiation. Expiation means that there's a period that you always get forgiven. Muhammad says that Allah told him that between each prayer is an expiation, all your sins get forgiven. Between each jummah, from one jummah to the other, if you make the next jummah, your sins will be forgiven. And from one Ramadan to the next, all your sins will be forgiven. Under the condition that he is mentioned, that you stand with the clarity of intention, that I'm doing this for the sake of Allah. And that is the hardest thing to do. When you pray and you're rushed and you've got so many things going on, you're thinking about your meetings, you're thinking about, I'm going to go out for a dinner, I'm late for my cinema showing, or I'm going to go to football. And you just quickly rush your prayer. There is no intention for Allah. You're not exalting Him. You're not giving Him what He deserves. And all you're doing is think about everything else. You've got to ask yourself, have I achieved that objective in that reward in, in terms of giving that forgiveness? So in the wudu, it is a very famous hadith that says that when you perform your wudu, washing your face will remove the sins of what you have seen and where your face has been. Washing your hands are the things that you've done with your hands which are haram. Washing your feet removes the sins for the places that you walked when you shouldn't have gone there. And anyone who then declares a shahada after, after his wudu, Allah says, on the day of judgment, all the eight gates of heaven will be opened for you to choose which one you want to walk through. So as much as Allah can give everything on this side, everything can be taken from the other side. So if you knew, if you knew right now, and Allah allowed you to know that you, when your death is going to be, if you knew that you were going to die next week on a Thursday, every one of your salah will be very different. Your Jummah will be so perfected. If the moment you will wake up, 
you will perfect your adab, you will wash, you will iron your clothes, you will put your udon, your itron, you will walk to the masjid, and you will pray like it's your last prayer. But we don't do behave this way. So these are the conditions for order. And you know what's beautiful about this is the fact that Allah is giving us your Allah is saying, look, I know you're a sinner. I know you mess up. But I am giving you so many little opportunities to get forgiven because I haven't told you when you're going to pass away. So you have these opportunities to keep cleaning, cleaning, cleaning your sins so that on the day of judgment, inshallah, you won't be standing there with any sins on your shoulders. But we're not even taking advantage of that. So this was a very, very beautiful hadith. The next person that converted into to Islam was a very famous Sahabi, Abdullah ibn Masood. You will hear about Abdullah ibn Masood in many stories. Let me just give you a little bit of background about Abdullah ibn Masood. And his mother and father, they lived in Makkah. His mother and father, he was a very young lad. And they were not from a very prestigious tribe. As a matter of fact, they were considered to be either slaves or they were considered to be the lowest social class. And in Arabia, if you're lowest social class, remember, Islam eradicated all of this and slavery. But in those days, if you're lower class, you're done. So Ibn Masood, he was probably the famous Mufassir, which means he was the most famous and the most learned about explaining the Quran. Now, this story is about Ibn Masood when he was young. And Ibn Masood used to look after the flock of Uqba bin Mu'ayt. Uqba bin Mu'ayt was one of the leaders of the Quraysh, right? There's many leaders, but they're the high class. And he had a flock and he used to take a little bit of work from him because they were a poor family. So one day he's out and he's taking the sheep and, the, and he's got camels and whatever flock he's got. And Muhammad and Abu Bakr Siddiq, now because there's only few of them that become Muslim, they stay together, they talk, they learn, and they try to keep out of the way of the Quraysh. So they always stick together. Now as they're walking and they come out of Makkah and they see Ibn Masood with the flock, they say to Ibn Masood, young boy, give us some milk. Ibn Masood said, it is not my right to give you the milk of the sheep or any of these animals or camel that doesn't belong to me. Even then, look at the look, honor that this man has. So Muhammad says to Ibn Masood, which one of your ewes or your camels is unable to give milk? Because what happens is some camels and animals, they get to a certain age, they're done. The others don't work, it's finished, okay, because of age. He said, okay, this one. He said, do you mind bringing that one to me? So Ibn Masood brought the, the ewe to Abu Bakr. Abu Bakr controlled it. And Muhammad went down, made the dua, and started to massage the udder, and the milk started to come out. When the milk came out, he gave to Abu Bakr Siddiq, and he gave it to Ibn Masood to drink, and then he drank himself. Ibn Masood, he was shocked. He said, who are you? I am the Prophet of Allah. I am been bestowed this responsibility to spread the message of Allah, the one God, and there's no associates with him. Ibn Masood said, that that day I embraced Islam and I took 70 surahs of him, which I memorized. Ibn Musud became so famous that Ibn Musud was one of those people that the many of the Sahabi used to refer back to him for a lot of the answers after the death of Muhammad Sallam. 
And Ibn Musud, after that state, at that point, he used to be the personal assistant of Muhammad Sallam. So what he would do, he would prepare his the water for wudu, he would pre- prepare his camel if he was on travel, his transportation, even to the point of miswak. And there was a hadith where Muhammad Sallam said to Ibn Masood that climb up the tree and get me the one the branches for the miswak. Because he was a very short, skinny, dark man. So he would climb up and the other Sahabi used to giggle and laugh because they would laugh at his skinny legs. Muhammad Sallam said, what are you laughing at? Do you not know that this Sahabi, the weight of his leg, his feet, will be heavier than the man of Uhud on the Day of Judgment? The weight that he will carry, doesn't matter what he looks like, when a man carries that much reward, he will be bigger and stronger than all of you on that day. And now we want to talk about the conversion of another Sahabi by the name of Khalid bin Said. Khalid bin Said was a Sahabi they say that he converted almost a few hours after Abu Bakr Siddiq did. So Hazrat Hamza became Muslim on the day when Abu Bakr Siddiq got attacked. And Khalid bin Said became Muslim a few hours when Abu Bakr Siddiq accepted it. So that means he was definitely one of the first few that embraced Islam. And how did he embrace it? Khalid bin Said had a dream. And in that dream, he saw that a whole land was on fire and it was a very severe fire and what was disturbing in that dream was that as he was trying to get away from the fire there was a man that was pushing him towards the fire trying to throw him into it and when he looked back it was his father pushing him then he said somebody came and he grabbed me by my waist wrappers from falling and pulled me away from the fire and that was I recognized his face it was Muhammad so when he woke up, Khalid ran out of his house and he ran straight into Abu Bakr Siddiq. And Abu Bakr Siddiq just embraced Islam. So when he saw Abu Bakr Siddiq, now Abu Bakr Siddiq, one of his skills was he was, he was very good at interpreting dreams. So when he saw Abu Bakr Siddiq, he said, Oh, you're the right man. I need you to help me. I've just had this dream. What does this mean? And he says, Subhanallah. He goes, the dream is very obvious. He goes, the way of your father and everyone else here is going to lead everyone to hell. And Muhammad is the prophet. Allah has declared him as a prophet and he has come out and he is going to guide us to the truth. And he has saved you in the dream. Now come with me and see Muhammad So Khalid bin Said goes over to see Muhammad and he says, tell me about the religion. And so he then goes on to explain to him about the religion. And that was enough for him to be convinced. Story goes on that the father of Khalid was a staunch enemy. He actually used to sell idols. So that's obviously going to economically impact him, right? You can imagine Master Salam is talking about one God and no idols. Your business is finished. So this really bugged him. So he became very angry. And he wanted, to, he wanted to go with some leaders of Quraysh and he wanted to berate Muhammad or attack him. But then the news came out that his son just embraced Islam. Now, Khalid bin Said had two brothers, Amr bin al-As and Adr bin al-As. Now, his father got hold of him and heard that he became Muslim. So his father beat him. He says, imprison this boy, take him down and shackle him up and don't feed him for three days, starve him. Let him come to his senses. When three days went by, 
His father sent the slave to go find out, has he come to his senses, come back to our religion? No, he's not, he's not budging from it. So his father thought, okay, let me send his two brothers, soften him up a little bit and talk. Both brothers went there to see Khalid. By the time the conversation finished, both brothers became Muslim. So the power of the dawah became impacting enough. And it was amazing because there wasn't many verses. What was twisting people's minds up was the concept of not looking at the, the thing about idols. Not thinking logically about how can an idol actually do anything for me? And how can they be equal gods sharing the power? What if one gets annoyed with the other? What does he do to the other one? Who's going to win the fight? So they can't be equal, then what? So this concept of oneness of Allah was very easy to be. So eventually the story goes on that Khalid bin Sayyid eventually when things got very tough, there was a period in Makkah that after about five, six years, things became so difficult. The Quraysh started torturing the poor of the Muslims because they're the ones that could do what they want. The people were from a higher class family. They couldn't touch them, but they could do trade embargoes. But the slaves... And the people in the lower class, they can beat them, they could torture them, they could do whatever they want, and they severely tortured them. Time came when Allah revealed to Muhammad Sallam that give these Muslims a way out. So they went to Abyssinia. So Khalid bin Said was one of those who went Abyssinia. And there was a story that there was a Sahabi by the name of Umm Habiba, and she was the daughter of Abu Sufyan. Okay, so Abu Sufyan is another leader in of the Quraysh who was a staunch enemy against the Muslims. And his daughter is the one that ended up going to Abyssinia's. Umm Habiba was now widowed. Muhammad Sallam, whilst he was in Makkah, proposed to Umm Habiba for marriage. And he wanted the negus to arrange for all the wedding. So Khalid bin Said was the wali, the representative. And he was the one who then performed the nikah of the marriage of Muhammad Sallam. So he was acting on behalf of Muhammad Sallam as the uh, as a person to be married. So this is why he was also famously known for this. But we don't hear um, anything much more about him other than the fact that he did end up going to Medina after a certain period of time, because after the Battle of Khaybar. So the last story is a story of Abu Dar Ghafari. So Abu Dar Ghafari, very famous Sahabi. There's not a lot of stories about him, but there's some very key events that he was involved with. Abu Dar Ghafari, uh, again, this was one of the early people that embraced Islam. So he was from a tribe called the Ghafar tribe. So if you think about Makkah and Medina to the north, to the western, west, southwest of Medina is an area of the desert where the Ghafar tribe lived. Okay. Now, the Ghafar tribe were horrendously known for create, doing pillage. They didn't have a lot of money, didn't have a lot of wealth. So what they relied on is when the Meccans used to take their caravan from Makkah to Syria, they would have to go past them on the road. They would get scraps off them, a little bit here and there, but that wasn't enough for them. So they were known to rob them on the way. And they were, people were scared of them. They were notorious. But there was something very unusual about Abu Dar, though he was a quite a prominent person in, within his tribe because of his family, he did not like what this, his people do. He was, there's always people within certain tribes and traditions and cultures and religions whose hearts are very much different. And he was one of them. So Abu Dar didn't like the way they were. 
They say that Abu Dar didn't really understand or accept the idol worshipping. So he was touching on the monotheistic belief and he didn't like a lot of their traditions and their values. So he wanted to move away from them. Abu Dar, his brother Anis and his mother, three of them, they left and they moved out and they stayed a little bit further away going towards Makkah. Now, as they moved all their things, Anis, his younger brother, was a bit of a businessman and he was a very fa he was a famous poet as well, very good at poetry. When he went to Makkah and he did his trade, now he walks into Makkah and there's some commotion going on and people talking about Muhammad Salam, you know, this man talking about Allah, this man attacking our gods, this stuff. There's a whole bunch of things going on now. Because remember, Abu Bakr Sadiq already came out to propagate Islam to the people and they didn't like and they beat him up. So there's obviously amnesty that's building up. It got to the stage that if anybody's asking about Muhammad or Abu Bakr Siddiq or any of these people, you're going to be in trouble. Anis comes in, does a bit of business, does a bit of trade and so forth. And then he starts hearing about this man Muhammad. And he hears a few recitations and so forth. And then he comes back. Abu Dar says to him, so what, what's happened? What have, you, what have you heard? He said, there's a man and they called him the Sabi, the one who rejected his own religion, moved away from it. But they say that he's like a soothsayer, he's a witch. But when he speaks, his language, this is not poetry, this is not, this is better. This is something, another level. And he speaks of one God. So Abu Dar thought to himself, this is something that I'm looking for. You wait here, let me go. Abu Dar enters into Makkah. Now Makkah, at this time, is now being guarded by the Quraysh. Because Muhammad's dawah is picking up momentum that news is getting out to, outer, to outer tribes about his religion and people are coming in to find out what is he talking about. So they wanted to stop the people interacting with him. So when Abu Dar walks in, the security stop him and say, what are you here for? You know, you're an outsider, we don't recognize you. He says, I'm here to see the man, the, the Sabi, they call him, the one who left his religion. That's who I've come to see. Now they got very angry and then they grabbed him and they started to slap him up and beat him up. So put him off, but it didn't work. Eventually he managed to get in and he was outside the Kaaba. There was no food and he started drinking from the Zamzam. And it was days and days going on. There's a different variation of the Hadith about this. Now, Hazrat Ali walks past and sees this man. Now, the Banu Hashim, this tribe, they're, they're a very hospitable tribe, right? They look after people, they see outsiders, they see that blessing. And one of the reasons for that was, if you remember, they're the ones who wanted to take care of the pilgrims, the pilgrims that come for Hajj. So they take this as a very big blessing. So he sees him, he's suspicious, don't want to say nothing. Hazrat Ali doesn't want to make it the situation more difficult, given what happened to Muhammad Sallam. So he says, why don't you come to my father's house and stay there? You look like you're from out of town. You need a place to stay. So he takes Abu Dar, goes to Abu Talib's house, stays the night, doesn't ask him a single question. In the morning, Abu Dar gets up, takes his water with the Zamzam in it and goes sits back outside the Kaaba. The whole day goes by, Hazrat Ali sees him again and says, why don't you come back to the house and stay? They don't say nothing to each other. So the second day he goes back. On the third night, he sees him still waiting. One hadith goes on to say that when Abu Dar was there, they say that he was there for nearly 30 days without food. And he survived on Zamzam. They say that he was sitting out there and two women, they came and they started doing the tawaf. But they had the two idols. You remember the two, Isaf and Nailah? They had the two idols 
that member that we said that the, this was a story of the two people, male and female, who wanted to come in and they wanted to commit fornication inside the Kaaba because they want to rebel. And Allah turned to statues. So the local Meccans, they put this there long, long time ago, hundreds of years before Muhammad was born, as a warning to the others that do not dishonor the house of Allah. But then eventually over time, when people started doing tuaf, they used to touch these and make it part of their part of their tuaf. So when he saw this, he basically says something very derogatory to them. They didn't like it. Because he didn't like the idols. And then he said it again. And they went off screaming. At that time, Abu Bakr Siddiq and, Hazr- and Muhammad were walking. And the women ran past and they said, what's the matter? What's happened? They said, oh, there's some foul-mouthed man that's standing over there. He said something to us and we're moving from here. As they walk up to Abu Dar and Muhammad says to him, who are you? He said, my name is Abu Dar Ghafari. And Muhammad put his hand in his head. From the Ghafar tribe. And Abu Dar felt so embarrassed. He thought, oh my God. Because the tribe doesn't have a very good reputation. And it wasn't that. Muhammad was shocked that someone from the Ghafar tribe has come here. And he said, why have you come here? He says, I heard that you are the Prophet. And that you've been chosen by Allah. Give me something. And then he recited some verses. And then he accepted Islam. For him, that was enough. He said to Muhammad that should I stay with you? He said, no, don't stay here with me. He says, but I, I want to declare Islam. He goes, don't declare Islam. He goes, a very hostile territory. The best thing for you to do is to go home and stay there. But Abu Dhar didn't listen. He goes to the Kaaba when everyone's back there in, in, in peak of time and he declares Islam and they all beat him up. Then he comes out and Muhammad says, I told you not to do this. He said, go back to your town and when the time is right, when you hear about me and I'm openly proclaiming Islam, then meet me. So the story that Abu Dhar then goes back, he tells his brother, his brother says, I will accept Islam, and then his mother accepted Islam. And Abu Dhar went back to his tribe and he tried his best to convert them. It took him a very long time. Story goes on eventually when Mahfsan came to Medina. So again, 13 years later, Abu Dhar Ghafari comes and meets Muhammad Salam. And people of Medina rush to the outskirts of Medina because they thought they were being attacked. Because Abu Dhar brings his whole tribe. And the Ghafari tribe are nutcases. So they're like, oh my God, get your arms out, get me out. And they're like, no, no, no. I've converted all of them. They're all with us. So this is the power that Abu Dhar had in terms of just that little dawah that he had. But one of the most beautiful stories about Abu Dhar was much later on in the Battle of Tabuk, when they left, the Battle of Tabuk was that I've, this was a this this story was was a quite a severe story because it was a great test upon the Muslims. They had to travel seven hundred miles from Medina going up towards Syria for a potential massive war. So they travelled and they had nothing. So many people they travelled. Some people stayed behind. The hypocrites stayed behind, and some honourable Muslims also stayed behind, and they got berated by Allah Subhanahu wa Taala, and then Allah forgave them. Abu Dar. Had a, wasn't rich at all. He had an old camel, and as you're traveling, the camel gave up, broke down, and just finished. So as he carried on walking, the people who already got to their station started already talking about people who didn't show up. Oh, he didn't show up. He's a hypocrite. He didn't show up. He's a hypocrite. And at a distance, they could see one man walking. They said, "Who's that?" And Muhammad Salam said, "Ya Allah, let that be Abu Dar." And in distance, he start, they, they could see his figure. And Muhammad Salam looked at him and shook his head. He said, this man will walk alone, stand alone, and on the day of judgment, he'll be resurrected alone. 
Story goes on, after Muhammad had passed away in Medina and Abu Bakr Siddiq became Khalif and Umar Khattab, Abu Dar found it very hard to live without Muhammad because he was a very close companion. That he then went to Syria under the rule of Abu Bakr Siddiq and Umar bin al-Khattab, the two first Khalifs. When the third Khalif came in, Hazrat Uthman, there was a lot, they made so much money, a lot of money was being given to family members and they were people got into the dunya more. Because when you got wealth and you got everything, it takes the focus off. It happened then and it happens now. And Abu Dhar didn't like this. And he was he was a person that was very strong at heart and he will speak up against anything that is wrong. So when he started speaking up, people used to get annoyed and he used to go to the Khalif Hazrat Uthman and say, he's always moaning, you know, he's embarrassing us. So Uthman said to, Hazrat Uthman said to Abu Dhar, you come back here to Medina, stay with me. Then in Medina, he started kicking up a fuss as well. So Abu Dhar said, I've had enough and I want to live alone. I want to go out. So he went to a town outside of Medina and he lived there with his wife and he had a young slave. They had nothing. One man, one Muslim, he went by and he stopped by to give salam. He said, Abu Dhar, I didn't know you were here. He said, Abu Dhar, you've got nothing here in your house. Now, of course, in the, in the time of Hazrat Uthman, everyone's got money. He's been giving money from the, the public uh, treasury. He's giving money to everyone. And I'm like, you're, you're one of the most famous Sahabi. You know, you're the companion of Muhammad Sallam. You don't have anything. He says, if you get an opportunity, you will see in Jannah, my house, everything is there. I don't need anything here. So he went. That's why that traveler felt so bad. He got a message back. And one of the Sahabi said in 3,000 dirham. And he sent the money back. He goes, I don't need any use of your money. Then the time was coming, he was going to die. He was very ill. His wife cried. He says, Abu Dhar, what are we going to do? We are in the middle of nowhere. Who is going to bury you? I'm an old woman. He's a young... What, we, we can't... How is he going to do the janazah? He said, the Prophet said to me, the Abu Dhar, don't worry. The mu'min, the believers will come and they will bury you and they will do your janazah. This is a prediction, a prophecy of the Prophet He says, I'm now going to die. He will wash my body, you put me in my coffin, and put me on the road. So he died, and they put him on the road. And they sat there, and they waited. His wife was sat there, she cried. Abdullah ibn Masood, the first story, the most famous sahabi, the most closest companion, the most knowledgeable one, rides past. And he's with his students, because he's going up towards Syria. And as he rides past, he stops. He said, who is this man? He says, this is Abu Dhar Ghaffari. Immediately, Abdullah ibn Masood came off his horse, kissed his forehead, and he said, Ya Rasul said, this man will walk alone, stand alone, raise up in the day judgment on his own. And so the prophecy of Muhammad was fulfilled. This greatest Sahabi, Ibn Masood, buried him with his students and did his janazah. What Muhammad said about Abdul Dar Ghaffari, Never ever have I seen the sky open itself. It never does it for anyone except for this man because of the haq and the truth that he stands on. So you can see how, you know, when you look at these stories, the lessons you can take from them and the virtue. I mean, so the lesson about this individual is he didn't care about the dunya. He didn't care about anything other than the fact that he wanted to please Allah. For everything Muhammad stood for, he wanted to embrace that. That he even defied even the Muslims, even Hadul Uthman for what they were doing.
But he didn't care. He was he would just speak up against anyone that does wrong. And here, Muhammad is saying on the day of judgment, he will stand up as a nation on his own.